The spurious argument that many people give today is the argument from silence. The argument goes like this. If Jesus never spoke against homosexuality, then it must be that by his silence, he either condoned it or didn't think that it was a major issue. Please understand that any argument from silence is always a weak argument. Hey, welcome to the In Doubt Podcast. My name is Isaac, your host. Today we have a great episode for you, as you can tell from the title. Uh, we're, we're jumping into what God says about our sexuality in his word. Now we're starting a brand new three-week series this week, taking us right up to the week before Christmas. The series is actually taken from our latest In Doubt Live event that happened in late October sexual identity. Some of you were actually able to be there with us. It was a lot of fun. Now, if you didn't know, uh, but you probably do, you know, we had this live event a couple months ago, which sort of looked like a TEDx talk, kind of. You know, we had Dr. John Newfeld from Back to the Bible Canada, uh, Steve Kim from Apologetics Canada, and Dave Johnson. He was a pastor of Ethos Young Adults. And they each presented a 15-minute sort of presentation uh, in front of a packed theater full of people uh, to help us understand God's truth in regards to sexuality and our identity and our culture and things like that. So for the next three weeks, we'll be listening in on their incredible presentations. Um, Today's episode specifically is Dr. John Newfeld's 15-minute presentation that seriously just goes pretty much straight into scripture, you know. He just gives this, uh, you know, great simple understanding of how we as Christians should relate to the Bible and then goes into specific texts that speak into, uh, you know, obviously sexuality and our identity. And he tackles questions like, you know, does the Old Testament law apply today? Um, And things like, you know, Jesus never talked about homosexuality, so how are we supposed to know what Jesus thinks about it and so on. But without taking more time, let's listen to Dr. John Neufeld's live presentation as Sexual Identity by Indel Live. There we go. I'm the oldest guy on the stage here, and uh, you might wonder well, how someone as old as I, uh, actually what I would know about sex. And um, the result, uh, the, the truth is I actually came into being because of an act of sex, as surprising as that might seem. But at any rate, I have been asked to, uh, to talk about what the Bible actually says about sexuality in 15 minutes. Now, is there a timer here somewhere? I don't see it. It hasn't started? Ah, okay. I have no idea. I, I'm looking at something. Okay. So I've been asked uh, to deliver a task of 15 minutes of declaring what the Bible actually says about sexuality, which is quite a task. So let me begin by saying I can't possibly answer all the questions, neither deal with all the text. So I'm going to have to zoom in and uh, deal with the question of what the Bible says about God's purpose in creation, whether there are, in fact, roles that are attached to gender, uh, what are the proper expressions of sex and sexuality, how did the Creator uh, design the sexual act and what did He intend by it, And finally, what are the prohibitions that are found in Scripture that deal specifically with this topic? So you'll find that I'll be talking about a number of those things, and uh, 15 minutes won't do it, but I want to set out a couple of biblical ramifications before we begin. I don't know that in a talk like this where a number of you stand, so let me set my presuppositions forward so that you at least know where I'm coming from. My view of Scripture, first of all, is one that is based on the inspiration of the text. I know that the Bible was written by real human beings, but I also know that behind those human beings is the divine author himself, the Holy Spirit, who superintended all of the words that are written in the text. 
Secondly, I also believe that the Bible is inerrant, that is, that it can be wholly trusted and that whatever it touches on, it is actually speaking the truth. Thirdly, I believe that the Bible is sufficient, that is, that the Bible is the sufficient guide for all matters relating to our faith and the conduct that rises out of our faith. I'm assuming that the Bible tells us everything we need to know about issues of faith and conduct. And finally, I believe that the Bible is a unity, that is, it actually speaks as one voice. So it's possible to tell what the entire Bible teaches on a given subject. So those are my presuppositions. Let's see where I can go. Still don't know. There's the time. Okay, good. There's no time that I'm looking at. Oh, there it is. All right, fine. Thank you. So let me begin by speaking about the biblical basis for heterosexual monogamy as the only proper expression of the sexual act. That's quite a mouthful, but that's what I'm going to try to prove. In the First Testament, or what we often call the Old Testament, there is an implication that's there that implies monogamy. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, begins with the Creator creating a man and a woman. I'd like to read some of that text as quickly as I can. Please note it. It says, and I read, Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then later it says, And then uh, the Lord made into a woman and brought her into the, to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then also it tells us that because of this, the Lord instituted the... Uh, the institution of marriage. And so out of that, a couple of things need to be said. The creation of the woman is designed to be the man's complement. She is to be his helper so that she has many things in common with him. She is fully his equal, and yet she shares fully in his humanity, and also she is fully in the image of God. Having said that, she is his complement. In other words, there is a unique role that she plays specifically out of her gender. The one flesh union that we read about in that text is designed by the creator, and it presupposes the opposite sex. The inst institution of marriage is based upon this purpose, the union of a man and a woman for the propagation of the species but also for a one flesh uh, designation. That, in other words, what they do together, they cannot do alone. Well, there's a mouthful in that, but I need to go on. When we come to the book of Exodus chapter 20, we come to the Ten Commandments. Time of Moses, God gives the Ten Commandments, and everything else that we read in the law is based upon the Ten Commandments. The first five commandments, uh, First four commandments are traditionally been called the first table of the law, and they are in reference specifically to God. The next six commands are in relationship to one another. So the first four teach us how to love God, and the next six teach us how to love each other. Of the, the last six, two of them deal with the sexual act. Command number seven says, you shall not commit adultery. And adultery should be plain to all of us. Adultery simply means any sexual act with someone who is not your spouse. And then secondly, the, the number 10 is you shall not covet your neighbor's spouse. So even the act of desiring someone else's spouse in one's heart is forbidden. 
And then when you read the rest of the Old Testament law, you have a full explanation of what the Ten Commandments actually are intended to teach. So when you come to Leviticus chapter 18, we read there a, a chapter which is specifically designed towards explaining what God had in mind uh, in the sexual act. The book of Leviticus has a theme of holiness, and holiness forms the basis of the book. The word holy or holiness is used 87 times in the book. The first half of Leviticus speaks about holiness in actions of worship, that is, in the sacrificial act and also in every relationship that God has towards us. So it's the first four commands of uh, the Ten Commandments, and then the last six commands are dealt with in the second half of Leviticus, and they are what has been often called the Holiness Code, which deals with what Israel is required to do in the presence of God. Chapter 18 relates to holiness in terms of family and sexual activity. Verses 6 to 18 deals with family, marriage, and sex, and forbids sexual relationships with close relatives. That might not have been easily understood in that day. And so God says, not only is marriage the standard by which you are to function, but there are also close relatives that you may not marry nor have sexual relations with. Then we come to verse 20, which forbids sexual relations with your neighbor's wife. Again, the adulterous act. Then verse 21, forbidden, uh, what is forbidden is offering one's children to Moloch, who is a pagan deity, and there is a sexualized act in offering your children in that manner. Then verse 22, homosexuality is forbidden. Verse 23, bestiality is forbidden. And then verses 24 to 30 contains warnings that Israel must not abandon these laws because God threw out the nations before them because they engaged in improper sexual acts. So a final note I want to say about the Old Testament and, and, and sexual ethics. It's a false assumption to say that the Old Testament law no longer applies to New Testament believers. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament law is complex. There are parts of the Old Testament law that are not to be applied to us, but are specifically intended for ancient Israel. And there are other parts of it that are the moral basis of it, which are to be applied to us. How shall we know the difference? The answer is that the New Testament lays it out for us. In fact, what we will find is that the New Testament takes Leviticus chapter 18 and plays on that theme regularly. So let me start with Jesus and uh, the law of sexual purity. The spurious argument that many people give today is the argument from silence. The argument goes like this. If Jesus never spoke against homosexuality, then it must be that by his silence, he either condoned it or didn't think that it was a major issue. Please understand that any argument from silence is always a weak argument. For instance, Jesus never mentioned anything about offering one's children to Moloch. Jesus never mentioned anything about bestiality. Jesus never mentioned slavery. Jesus never mentioned war crimes. Jesus never mentioned the games in Rome, which were a process of killing innocent human beings. Jesus never mentioned any of those issues. So if we base our morality upon what Jesus never mentioned, I think we are impoverished indeed. So what did Jesus actually mention? 
Well, I'm going to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, and there are a couple of things that are important for us to take note of. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19, he begins by saying, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. However we understand Jesus, we must understand him in this way. Jesus was a man who was thoroughly rooted in the Old Testament morality. At no point in time, and if I had time, I'd argue why I know this is the case, does he overthrow the moral basis for the Old, for the Old Testament. Secondly, Jesus does use a word found frequently throughout the New Testament, and the word is translated as porneia. We find it in Matthew 5, verses 27 to 32, where he says, You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. And then he goes on to say that, um, that um, he forbids uh, porneia, that is, lust in one's heart. And really, the whole thing behind that is porneia is a reference to all of the Old Testament sexual laws. Anything that is condemned sexually in the Old Testament is condemned by Christ. And so as a matter of fact, Jesus did speak about homosexuality and a whole host of other issues as well. Secondly, the, the Old Testament laws are found frequently in the writings of Paul. Romans 1, 24 to 27, Paul has an extensive treatment of, uh, of homosexual sin, and he places it alongside of a whole host of other ones. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to take a little bit of time there, I'm running out of time, but uh, please listen to these words from 1 Corinthians 5, 11 to 13. Uh, here we read, oh, let's find it here, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, porneia is the word here, or greed, or is an idolater, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And then, of course, uh, going forward from that passage in verses 11 to 13, we go to chapter 6 and verses 18 to 20. Please listen to these words. Here Paul will write, oh boy, i got to find this in this light, and says, flee from sexual immorality, from porneia. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, uh, concerning matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because there is so much temptation to sexual immorality, Paul commends marriage as the antidote for dealing with out-of-control sexual urges. And so we have a number of issues that are before us. There is a list in Pauline writings that sounds very similar to the list in Leviticus 18. Clearly, for the New Testament writers, Jesus included. The Levitical laws concerning sexual conduct are still in play for New Testament believers. That seems to be clear in regards to that. Uh, secondly, also, in uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul seems to mention something that is often missed by us, and it's missed by translations. 
Paul says men who commit homosexual acts, whereas in fact in the original he has two different words that he uses. One is the man who performs the effeminate relationship in a homosexual relationship and the one who performs the masculine act. And Paul says both are condemned. And he says so because in the ancient Roman world, often the effeminate partner was looked down upon, but the masculine one not. In Paul's writings, both are condemned by God. So what I'm simply saying is that there is no place in the entire scripture, either Old or New Testament, which there is even an opening for any form of sexual expression outside of uh, the sexual expression between a man or a woman in a monogamous, well, I shouldn't say monogamous, but in a marriage relationship that... Um, um, in which there is a heterosexual marriage relationship. The Bible knows only that kind of a relationship. Thank you. Now, up to this point, if you have questions in regards to sexuality and identity, you know, you may have got some answered here, especially if they were most likely, you know, straight up biblical questions, but you probably now have 10 more questions in regards to how these biblical truths apply today. Again, this is the first of a three-part series, so I'd encourage you to hang in there as we continue to listen in the next two weeks. And by the way, as the end of this year approaches, whether you've just started listening to this podcast or not, um, it would be awesome if you would rate and review us on iTunes. You see, when people rate and review us on iTunes, iTunes then looks at our podcast and says, hey, this podcast is enjoyed. Let's let's rank it higher. And we know people are listening because we see the numbers and we've been honored as the last three months have been outdoing, you know, the previous month. And that's a huge thank you to you guys. So anyways, rate and review on iTunes. We would love that. Well, that wraps up the Indo podcast. To listen to the past episodes, read blogs and watch our videos, head to indo.ca. There you can find everything that you need. Anyways, I'm Isaac. And next week we hear Steve Kim from Apologetics. Canada. The In Doubt Podcast is a part of Back to the Bible Canada's young adult ministry, In Doubt. All of Back to the Bible Canada's ministry programs and resources are created for the purpose of leading people forward in their walk with Jesus every day. For more information on all things Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca.